everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders, where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and today we're going to play an episode with Ryan Howard, who I interviewed for another podcast that I host called On the Health Record. Ryan is the founding CEO of a digital health company called 100 Plus, which specializes in remote patient monitoring. He's also the former CEO and founder of Practice Fusion, a developer of an electronic health record system that was acquired by Allscripts in 2018. In this episode, Ryan addresses the finer points of how to build your company the right way. We have a great interview for you today. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy it. Let's play the tape. Ryan Howard has been a founder and CEO in the healthcare technology space for just over 15 years. In 2005, he founded Practice Fusion, an EHR company and direct competitor to Dr. Chrono. He founded his second company in 2016, which provided a remote patient monitoring device and services to Medicare patients. Ryan has worked with several highly recognized business coaches, including Bill Campbell, Tony Robbins, and Dr. Oz. Did all that sound about right? It does. I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, let's start here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in this business. You know, for me, my, the, the, the culmination of what kind of pushed me into being an entrepreneur and then, you know, in the EMR space and, and the healthcare space in general was, you know, first of all, I, I think that I, I was always a bad employee. I never, you know, I always thought I had a better idea than uh, my manager or the boss, you know, whoever the boss was at the time uh, dealing with me. And I used the word, you know, the phrase dealing with me intentionally because I was a pretty big pain in the ass. And so, and so I think that that was it. You know, I always thought I had something a little better, whether I did or not is another conversation. And then, you know, the, the healthcare piece, when I started practice fusion, for example, I had previously been a product manager for a company that was bringing EAI tools to market. So we were effectively streamlining Walmart supply chain. And during that time, a good friend of mine got leukemia and I ran the team and training marathon. And, you know, while I was doing that, I recognized that, you know, uh, when I die, the, my legacy would be that I added a fraction of a penny to Walmart's share price in, 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 in the upside scenario. And, and that was really the genesis that pushed me into healthcare. A lot of my skill set at the time mapped over to healthcare. I started working for a healthcare company, Brown and Tolan in San Francisco, a very large medical group, um, solved the problem space of, you know, um, all these practices, literally every one of them was a spirit, not a single practice was exchanging data. This is around 2002, 2003. I also recognize that you know, the average individual sees 18 different doctors in their lifetime. And there's a quarter million, death, quarter million deaths a year simply from the unavailability of medical information and your other charts, data that should clearly flow practice to practice. And that was the genesis of, of you know, going into the space and then also starting practice fusion as well. Awesome. So you've been a founder and a CEO for over 15 years. One of your favorite talking points is protecting yourself as a founder. Can you speak at a high level about the role of founders, what they do and why they might need protection? Yeah, look, I, I think that for the listeners of this podcast, I think that, you know, you're in Cupertino, if I'm correct about that. And, you know, we're up in San Francisco, so we're in the Bay. And so I think that beyond just being a founder and you you and Dr. Carano, you know, you know, we work for technology companies that are largely in the Bay Area and largely take down venture capital for their the catalyst to bring their product to market and their funding. Most of the companies that you know or you speak with are not bootstrapping. It's almost unheard of is the interesting piece. And so by doing that, you know, a lot of interesting hooks and obligations come with that that most founders, you know, simply ignore. And it's not blatantly ignored in my opinion. What I've learned over time, you know, from being one is that we're simply naive. No, no one's telling you all the downside. And a lot of people are incentivized not to tell you the downside. So Oleg, if you start a company and it has some merit and it's novel, and I think as an investor, I can make some money off it and get a return, I'm gonna fund the company. But you know what you don't know in that process, and you're, you're excited, right? If I give you five or $10 million, you're, you're living your dream. 
Um, but you know, what you don't know is that you know half of all founders, according to the founder of Sequoia, half of all their founders after a Series A financing are let go or terminated after 18 months. And that's very early in the journey. Never mind the Series B, Series C, Series D. And then beyond that, you know, I, I give this presentation often and I just gave it to UCSF, uh, a, a group of students there about two weeks ago. It's called Protecting Yourself as a Founder. And in it, I have a model that shows if, you know, I am your investor and, uh, you know, we invest, me and other investors invest in your Series A and Series B and Series C and Series D. The other things that are happening is that the, the investors, whether you recognize it or not, you're slowly but surely losing control of the company, explicit control from a board perspective. So, you know, at Practice Fusion after the Series A, uh, which is very common, you know, you as a founder, if you founded the company alone, you'll have a board seat. And if I invest in you, I will as well. And you no longer have autonomy over that company. Um, after the Series B, if, if that is the board economics, you have one seat and I have one seat. After the Series B, you know, a large investor is gonna come on with each one of these rounds and clearly they should get a board seat, right? If I'm giving you five or 10 or $50 million, I should have some say. But beyond that though, now the board at the, at the Series B, very early in your journey, has explicit control and can terminate you. And, and then beyond that, other mechanics are happening as well. So, you know, if you look at a company hitting their Series D, the investors are gonna own 90% of that company on, on this, in the standard model. There's nothing really that is an outlier or egregious about what I just said. I can, you know, show a model of this and nearly every time, you know, you're really not gonna own that much. Now that said, the company's probably worth a couple of few hundred million dollars, theoretically, and you know, you're a multimillionaire on paper, but I, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs think they're gonna be a billionaire and, and have full control of their destiny, and that's simply not the reality. Uh, again, half are found, are, are let go of after 18 months, 75% of startups simply fail in their entirety. And then it's hard to find this, this piece of data, Oleg, but I believe it's 95 to 97% of founders do not have a positive economic outcome. And, and so what do I mean by that? Let's say I and some other investors have done your Series A, Series B, Series C, Series D, and let's say we've put $100 million in your business. Pretty great, right? And let's say your business is worth $300 million, right? Everything's copacetic. We have something worth a lot. Let's say there's a market turn or the, the business has been valued based on potential, but not actual revenue. And let's say for some reason, this happens all the time, every day, there's a turn of events and you know the company is not worth as much as everyone thinks. And let, let's say it sells for $50 million, which sounds like a ton of money. In nearly every scenario, you, you, you know, you're, you're gonna think you're gonna make a lot of money from that as a founder. You would literally not make a nickel in that transaction. You would not make anything because the founders have what's called a liquidation preference and even a standard 1X liquidation preference. So that's not aggressive, that's uh, normal they're going to get their money back first and you could have five or 10 years into the business. So my, the, what I'm passionate about is that there are a number of mechanics throughout this where a founder can be empowered. And, and it's not about having absolute control. It should be a partnership, but it's really about not being naive. It's about understanding the mechanics of the board, of the investor, of, of how the investment actually works. So you can have a little more control on the board, so if, if you are exited, you're not walking away with nothing, you're walking away with something. Um, and then also getting a little bit of liquidity every round. During your series B and C round, you should get a little money off the table in case things go sideways. And it's not just about the company not working out, it's after a series C or series D where the investors probably have full control over the outcome, if they wanna sell the company or bring it in a direction you don't want to, that's their choice because that's what you've signed off for, but at least you got some liquidity and some upside out of the scenario, even if they burn the company down for lack of a better phrase. So there, there's a lot to unpack there, but this happens every single day. Um, it happens dramatically, you know, 
I'd say 95 times out of 100. And so it is the norm. So you and I, you know, we get stuck on the really great outcomes out there. No one is standing on their soapbox talking about the failures, but they, they empirically uh, overcast and, and outnumber the successes by, you know, by a, a nine to one ratio and then some. So it, it's more likely to happen than not. I mean, candidly, if I could bet against, if I could hedge against every startup in the Valley, not that I'm, I'm an investor uh, in, in that light, but if you could do that, you'd make dramatically more money than trying to pick the winners. And so there's just some ways and mechanics to protect yourself and still have a positive outcome and uh, not be taken advantage of and that I really focus on. So I put together a package that helps founders navigate that. So you, you spoke about, you know, um, kind of the reason for needing protection. What are some of the steps that a founder can take to make sure they are protected? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's four significant milestones where a founder is going to gain or lose leverage in the business. And one is during a corporation. So a simple thing you can do when you incorporate the company, instead of just listening to your attorney and going, yeah, I'm on the board. Um, I always recommend making sure first and foremost, your board seat as a founder should be irrevocable, meaning it cannot be taken away from you unless you divest all of your holdings, which is really, really uncommon. So, but in that way alone, your board seat is technically not to represent you. Now, you will be a common shareholder, so you can look out for your own best interests, but that board seat also looks out for other founders and employees as well. So as long as you are a significant shareholder, let's say over, you have, you know, over one, two, three, 5% of the business, as far as ownership, you get to stay on that board and you get to have some control in the direction of the business, even if you are terminated in that case, which again happens all the time, it allows you to look out for the best interests of the common shareholders as well as yourself being the employees. Um, without this, many times the board can end up explicitly just being investors and they can do whatever they want. And this is ultimately what happened at Practice Fusion. Um, one of the other things I highly recommend is allocating three to four common seats up front. Now, not filling them, but the day you incorporate, put if you and I are starting the business together, Oleg, instead of you and I just being on the board, let's put an empty seat. And so, therefore, after the Series A, it's me and you and a Series A board member. After the Series B, it's me and you and a Series A and Series B board member. At the Series C, when a third investor comes on the board, we still have an open common seat that we can fill. Again, there's balance now in that board. Instead of just being Ryan or Oleg and three outside investors where you're clearly outnumbered. And, and the problem is, and let me just take one step back. I didn't mention this. Your goal as a founder, and I think anyone listening to this podcast, is to build a great company, have an impact, and potentially have an outcome. I mean, obviously people want to do good and do well, right? My, if I'm an investor, are all those things important to me? Nah, not so much. You know, to some extent, I can give you lip service and ultimately, maybe they are, but let's be very realistic. I am an investor. And so I, your investor usually doesn't have a lot of money, right? There's a tremendous number of startup investors out there and they get a small, very small draw off the fund. They might make, you know, one to 300 grand a year. All their economic upside is in your company having an exit. So, you know, a sale or an IPO, um, more likely a sale. Um, and they, they live and die by their limited partners. So, you know, endowments and high net worth individuals that gave them the money in the first place, that funded the fund. So if they're not performing, they don't eat, right? And if they're not performing, they're not gonna get their next fund. So the net is, is that, again, your goal is to build a great company and have an impact. Their goal, just to shorten everything I just said, is to have a financial outcome. And many times, these are competing interests. And so back to kind of the mechanics, um, you know, at the incorporation, the board structure is really critical here. Um, a few other points during your, uh, you know, initial fundraising, you'll, you know, most founders I see do not have an employment agreement. It's, it's maddening to me. They, they either don't even have one or they have the same one their employees have, which 
they're the founder, they took more risk, they should have some additional rights. So things like a robust severance package, um, if I come work for your company, Oleg, as your chief marketing officer, I'm going to have a severance package in there. I'm going to have equity acceleration and salary for six to 12 months if things don't work out between us, even if it's my fault. That's a standard executive package. You need to go negotiate that on your own behalf because no one else is going to do it. Um, the other piece, so if you do get fired and if the board controls the company, you know, you need to be a big boy, a big girl and, and know, you know, that, that that can and may happen. But you can also or at least walk away with some dollars in your pocket to allow you to have some space and think about your next move instead of I, I know a founder that, you know, that had a pretty high profile uh, termination. He saw some of my stuff online immediately after and he you know, called me and unfortunately the ship had sailed, but he, you know, walked away with no money and he had none saved up because he put it all in the business. It was just tragic to see. So I, I, there's a bunch of other things, but these are just two, you know, macros. It goes on and on, you know, board structure, the actual board members you're hiring. Um, it, you know, there, there's a number of different things you can do, but those are two solid uh, mechanics or strategies that um, can help you in the role longer and, and it's not just about full again i'll always emphasize it's not just about fully insulating yourself because it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game where you win it if you're not performing or there's a better human out there that can run the business um you shouldn't be the ceo and you you know i've come to realize you know if there is a better person i'd rather have them run the company because i'm a pretty big stakeholder and if they can derive more value for my you know the other common shareholders and uh, the employees and myself as well, you know, that's awesome. I can go take a break and they can go kill it and the company will be in better hands. But it's really about just not being taken advantage of um, in that case uh, where you're, you're just, you know, because you're naive or uninformed because it's your first rodeo that someone comes in and bumps you up because they want to sell the company or drive it in a different direction. Awesome. I, I feel like I learned a lot. Thank you for sharing. I feel, uh, you know, uh, much more excited about the potential of this hypothetical company of mine and we're going to bring it on and do, do a lot of great things. Um, but yeah, let's, let's keep going. Um, you've been coached by, you know, some pretty famous executive coaches, uh, Bill Coach Campbell and Tony Robbins, who are both highly regarded among others. Can you like take me in the room and tell me what those coaching sessions are like? Maybe maybe speak about each one because I I, fig I figure you know both probably have their own styles. So uh, yeah, what what are what's it like in those rooms? Yeah, so Bill Campbell passed away a few years back. Um, Bill was you know had a lot of interesting wins and losses. He was with a company called Go years ago that was incredibly well funded with hundreds of millions of dollars that failed. And then he went on to be the CEO of Intuit. And I believe he brought him from like 60 million to 6 billion in revenue. So he had, he had seen kind of, you know, massive successes and failures. And, and I tend to think we're more defined by our failures over time than our successes and our learnings from them. And he definitely had gone through that. Um, when he passed away, he had been, you know, coaching uh, the CEO of Google, was on the board of Google. He was best friends with Jobs on the board at Apple. So he and then Cora Telez, who's the former CEO of Blue Shield California and HealthNet, she, she was on my board of practice fusion. These are two of the most seasoned operators, you know, that, that I've ever seen. Cora's on the board of eight public companies. And at some point, if you've been in the game, they were both, you know, Cora's still working with us. And Bill was, I think, 70 when he passed. And at some point you kind of get so evolved you've seen the movie that you can kind of see the pieces and predict how they're going to move on the chessboard before the moves are actually made and so bill's big piece was about you know a lot of people that i see at this level and bill bill and cora as well they it gets more behavioral right if you're having a struggle they can tell you how to navigate the different personalities. Um, Bill was an expert on venture capital, fundraising, bringing a company public. Um, he focused very much on predictability. You know, if the company was predictable, it was ready to go to market uh, in a public offering. And if it wasn't, uh, it wasn't time to go. Um, 
Cora helped us navigate a practice using a lot of volatile personalities that we have in the boards. So we had a lot of venture capitalists that were quite challenging, and it was remarkable to see um, a five foot two, you know, Filipino woman take on these seasoned male venture capitalists and put them in, in their place. And, and she's remarkable in her own right. You know, so they're both just phenomenal. Cora remains a big influence. Uh, Tony's a little bit different. He's an investor in 100 plus. He's, you know, kind of what you see on a lot of his uh, podcast and his other coaching efforts. You know, when, when he's with you, he's more focused on changing your psychology. He's using techniques like NLP. So he'll go, you know, Oleg, you started this business and you're down today. What are the five best reasons that you can run this business? And by saying those and reciting those out loud with intent, that will change your psychology, which is, you know, really compelling, powerful stuff. And that, that helps me a lot. I think the job of the CEO is massively isolating, right? You don't have a lot of people to talk to. There's not a lot of people at your level. Most of your employees, you know, tend to want something from you, right? They want a raise or praise or whatever it may be. And so it's, and you can't tell them all of the gnarly parts of what's going on with the business that might cause fear, right? So, you know, there's a lot of struggles um, of finding someone to um, simply vent to. And I think if you're going home and telling your spouse or significant other or wife or boyfriend or whatever, you can do that once in a while, but at some point they're becoming your, your psychologist and it's gonna erode your relationship. So it's just a, it's a tough job and it's really important to have a great team of coaches. And these, these three people in particular have all been really, really instrumental in helping me manage items that I found insurmountable at the time and really developing my leadership my leadership philosophy. Um, two other notables are Christina Harbridge. She is the CEO of Allegory. She coaches a lot of the TED Talk speakers and she's brilliant in her own right. And then um, Melissa Derby is a you know, renowned coach to Fortune 500 CEOs that uh, takes a totally different approach on you know eliminating um, psychological blocks, uh, kind of like Tony Robbins, but she uses a totally different technique. And uh, so they're all incredibly interesting and, and uh, have been massive assets. And, you know, I encourage everyone that is in the role to put a team around them, um, much like this, of people who have, you know, seen and conquered these different challenges. And I think that this team around you isn't just limited to people who have been doing it for 30 years. It's a, you know, great executive assistant, right? It's a great physical therapist. I think it takes that type of team to ensure that a true CEO is running at top of their game, especially when you're running a really large company that has a lot of value um, and is very high stakes as well. Would you say that being an entrepreneur is the only job for you? Or if you had to choose, what kind of job would you do instead? That's a good question. I don't think it's the only job for me. I actually, and, and this is a little off track from your question, I tend not to recommend it. So it, it's it's one of the most challenging jobs. I think it's um it's almost like like I said earlier about the about the venture capital thing and getting excited about you keep seeing these billion dollar outcomes, but the the reality is is that there's more dramatically more carnage than than there are these billion dollar outcomes. So I think the job is incredibly challenging, if not impossible, sometimes massively stressful. I would argue unsustainable, especially for other relationships. Someone once told me life is a balance of health wealth and love. And if you imagine those on a pie chart, you know, whenever you pour more energy and attention in the one, sometimes the other one is going to suffer, especially when, you know, it's a company, you're going to put so much time and energy into it. Likely you're going to have less time either for your body on the health front or your personal relationships being love. And that can be love as in an intimate relationship or just your family, right? And so those are gonna get either less attention or dysfunctional or become non-existent. So I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't paint it with doom and gloom. I think I'm just a realist and it's a really challenging job that you know sometimes I ask myself why I did it in the first place. For me, the social impact's really, really critical. So on my hardest days, I look up and you know, this year we've assisted you know, 10,000 grandmas in getting, with my current company, 
and getting better healthcare. And that's really rewarding and it makes it worth it. For me, I, I think if I wasn't doing this today, I would be doing one or two things. Um, I make my own chocolate and it's being the bar and I make it from scratch and I'm really passionate about it. And I think there's an incredible business there. So it's a pet project, but I think um, I could scale this something larger or at least, you know, something to maintain my livelihood. And so that is something I would likely do at some point. That said, my next project when this is done will likely be in politics, a political platform that I, I think it's where it's been eating away at me that I can't turn it off. And I think that to answer the beginning part of your question, Oleg, it's like kind of like, why do we do this if it is so hard? And I think that, you know, it comes to because we, because I have to, because we have to, because that calling is so much louder it outweighs the pain. And so I, this, I have a project that, you know, I've been dreaming about for a few years that will be, you know, the next thing I do at some point over the next few years that I'm really stoked about. That was a great answer. I did not expect that. Um, so thank you for sharing. Another bit of a mind bender, you know, what do you think that regular working folks can take away from these kind of founder lessons that you've shared with us? You know, there's a lot of people that are, aren't executives, that aren't starting companies, that have their regular nine to five. Why should they maybe take on an entrepreneurial mindset? Look, I don't think, you know, I think that a lot of entrepreneurs, for me in particular, a lot of this feels like it's never come easy. So I, I do think that, you know, the risk is real, right? I sold my house and by the time my last company got funded, I had a house in foreclosure and I was four years behind on my taxes and I needed two root canals and I highly don't recommend that path. But I think that, you know, the, the inspiration is just that it can be a beautiful thing. And I don't think you need to go to these deep, deep extremes. Your impacts can be, you know, a side job. It can be helping at a smaller scale. It can, you, you know, so I, I think that it doesn't necessarily have to be this binary outcome, quit your job, go for it. Um, but I think that, you know, waking up and being inspired and, and making an impact in your own right. And it doesn't have to be altruistic per se. I, I know a lot of people that are passionate about mapping the bike routes in San Francisco. And I think that that's great. I think a lot of the techniques and tips out there that the entrepreneurs need to use, because if you're in a hyper growth company, you're constantly waking up to new situations that you've never seen before and you have to hack them. And so really what Tony Robbins and Christina Harbridge and Cora and Bill are and were to me are accelerators, right? You're, you're taking 30, 40 years of experience from each one of them and getting what you need to, you know, because when I started practice fusion, for example, I was so kind of nascent in my career that, you know, you can get the best pieces to, you know, manage and cope these insanely challenging problem sets that you're just not qualified for. And I think that, you know, leveraging that framework in your day to day um, you don't need to be running a billion dollar startup to get value from that and to get inspiration from that. I, I do think, I just, just to chime in on the, the downside, I think a lot of people take advantage of it. I think you have your guy Kawasaki's and Tim Ferriss's that, you know, make it into a product and take it, you know, this four hour work week stuff. I just, I, I think it's a little bit contrived. And I do think there are people out there capitalizing on it, which I think is unfair to entrepreneurs and kind of, nearly lures some people into it. I think the realist viewpoint is much more pragmatic and uh, authentic and fair. And I think that's critical. But um, I, I think that, you know, there's, uh, I think it's remarkable, the, the, the inspiration and then the tools. I mean, you're using a product right now that is recording this podcast that it looks like I can go sign up for and spin up my own podcast in a few hours and that's remarkable, right? So the barriers to entry are so low, it's really inspiring. And you don't need to, you know, quit everything you're doing and risk your livelihood. You can do a side hustle um, that um, that can satiate that, uh, your spirit of creation, which I think is really, really cool. All right, next let's dive into the practice fusion side of things. Plenty of people have good ideas. How are you able to turn your idea into a business? Yeah, so we started Practice Fusion in really 2007. I had, as I mentioned, I worked at a company called Brown and Tolan. It was a really large medical group. And 
you know, I think that the best ideas come out of problem sets. So, you know, I, I had, and I'll give you some contrast on this, uh, an investor I knew, a very bright one, called me during the summer. He had a couple of students that were super smart that wanted to solve physician scheduling. And they had never done anything in the space before. They hadn't worked for Dr. Crono or Practice Fusion or ZocDoc, right? All ZocDoc does is physician scheduling. So they hadn't gone through the learning that these other businesses that have thrown hundreds of millions of dollars at this problem set quite literally. And I think that's a uh, poor way generally to go against a problem set when there's just so much institutional knowledge, you're not leveraging any of it. Uh, and don't get me wrong, beginner's mind's great sometimes, but understanding why things are the way they are um, is generally pretty critical. So with Practice Fusion, I had worked at Brown & Tolan, saw that you know Brown & Tolan in particular had a few thousand doctors under management. Every one of them used a different system to manage their practice. And at the time, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, I, I can't think of a single practice that had digitized records. And so for all the reasons I mentioned, we thought, I, I knew that needed to be fixed. Um, soon after, I worked for a company called Grand Central. And at the time, Grand Central in 2002 was the original AWS. You could put web services in the cloud and build a full application. The founder of that business was the largest outside investor in Salesforce.com. His name was Halsey Miner. And he really was taking what Salesforce had done and just made it generic, was making it generic for other apps and developers to build in the cloud. And unfortunately, Grand Central didn't work out. It would have been a juggernaut. But that model of bringing this service into the cloud, we knew these doctors didn't have IT resources. We knew the mass majority, 80% of them plus, were in small practices. So they, they, they were in small disparate practices. They didn't have an IT resource. They were cash constrained. They didn't want to manage the tech. And in contrast, or, or along with that, you had companies at the time like Allscripts, soon after Epic, et cetera, that were charging you know literally $50,000 to a practice that couldn't maintain the technology. And then the practice is making, you know, a primary care doctor is probably making 160 to 180 grand a year. So imagine yourself, oh, like, I don't know what you make, but imagine paying 20 or 30 grand for a piece of software in your life. You would just never, ever, ever do it. And so we knew that by putting the service in the cloud, we could move to a SaaS-based model like Salesforce. And at the time, Salesforce was two or three hundred dollars a month. And also and solve the price issue and the delivery issue. The third component about healthcare was these doctors needed to be connected to CVS and Walgreens. If there was connectivity issues and they needed to be connected to so that's for prescriptions and they need to be connected to LabCorp and Quest and other labs for results for their patients. And so I knew because because I had an integration background that each one of these connections was incredibly challenging to implement. It took a lot of time to coordinate with the respective lab or pharmacy and plug each practice into it. So I knew that a platform approach by plugging in, for example, CVS one time into our platform it didn't matter how many doctors we brought, brought on, whether it was one or a hundred thousand, we knew they could all obviously leverage that connection. They were spokes uh, to our hub and there was a massive economy of scale. So arguably much more efficiency than just hosting an app in the cloud like a Salesforce. So that was really the culmination of the technology model. And then as we got going, we started seeing some traction and we started selling the product for a couple hundred bucks a month and we struggled getting the doctors to pull their wallets out of their pockets. So we went to a free model, but it was like $50 a month for support. So it was kind of like a, I'm gonna date myself a little bit, but in 2007, 2008, it was kind of like a Red Hat-esque model where you get the software for free and you pay for support. And one day, you know, we were quite small, probably four people. I was on the phone with the doctor and he started haggling with me and he didn't want to pay $50 a month, which again, there are other solutions out there that were $50,000, but he didn't, this guy didn't want to pay $50 a month. And he offered me $25 a month instead of 50. He started haggling with me. And that was really internally, you know, I, I work really well when I'm boxed in and I'm a little bit frustrated because I'll start throwing spaghetti at the wall 
when something is not, when I'm not seeing the outcome I want is when I get a little scrappier and a little more innovative. So the next day we tried free, free, free for the software, free for support. We thought we could come up with a model to subsidize the rest of the delivery of the service and support. And so we went totally free. We had a webinar where we had 23 doctors or so on. And right after that, 19 of them signed up for the service. And we knew that this cost barrier we had seen was just dramatically higher with a doctor than it was you and I as consumers. We knew this was the holy grail of eliminating that blocker. And so that's um, when we went totally free. So Practice Fusion was the first ever enterprise product in history to deliver a free model to market. Uh, to market. And it was featured in uh, Chris Anderson, who at the time was the uh, chief editor at uh, Wired Magazine. He had a book called Free and we were featured in that book as well. A quick sidebar, I don't want to take us too far back, but yeah, I, I was kind of struggling. You're talking about, you know, paying for software. I love Spotify. I was uh, recently a student. I, did, I just got off my student plan and to go from like $5 a month to $10 a month, that was a pretty, pretty epic decision for me. So $20,000, uh, no, no, thank you. But let's get back to it. What, what were some of the most important lessons that you learned as a healthcare technology CEO for 10 years? You know, you were in the space uh, at Practice Fusion for that, for all that time. And, and you kind of, you're, you're, you're remaining in the healthcare tech space um, at, uh, by founding 100 plus. So what did you learn in those 10 years and why did you decide to sort of stick in the not same market, but, but a similar, uh, maybe uh, auxiliary market? Yeah, I think there is, you know, I think there's two or three categories of, of learnings and, and one we really covered it. It's really, there was a tremendous amount of learning about how to navigate this landscape. And in some ways I could paint it as a minefield, right? And whether it's venture capital or hyper growth or whatever tag you want to put on it, um, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not here to demonize venture capital, but you know, if you're taking on a hundred or two hundred million dollars, in the case of practice fusion, it was nearly two hundred million dollars of capital. There's going to be hooks and obligations and, and challenges and minefields that come with it. That th these people, you know, you need to play the game and play it well. It, it, it does become a zero sum game, and that's a tremendous amount of money, and they're not joking around, right? That they want to return on it. And so, everything I just talked about, this protecting yourself. Uh, as the founder, this kind of series and some of the advising I do around that, there were some macro learnings there. Um, and, and the overarching piece of that is, is that, well, like if you have a creation that is of value, so if you go create a model or, you know, something alone in your home, a puzzle, et cetera, that's yours. But as you start sharing with the world and it has value, right? If it, when it has, especially you know, th this is a very capitalistic society and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, as people see real value there, they're going to cling on to it and want a piece of it. And they're going to want, and that might not just be the money and ownership part, it might be the control part as well. So overarching, a lot of the, thematically, a lot of what I try to help with, and I want to be clear, I'm not selling anything on this podcast, I have a full-time job, but what I try to help with is that, you know, if you have something of value, I like to help social entrepreneurs that are trying to have an impact, but you know, do good and do well, trying to have a financial outcome as well. And a lot, there's a lot of different stakeholders out there that don't really care about the impact. They only care about the financial outcome. Um, I know many investors, and especially on the VC side, side that would easily and happily invest in dirty coal if it gave them a good enough financial outcome. So I think the majority of investors, even if you have a business that's altruistic, they might be on board for that. But again, I think even if you want a good financial outcome and they, you know, they clearly do as well, they have likely forced ranked that financial outcome way over the social impact of the business. So one that that's one piece of the learning. Um, on the healthcare side, you know, I, I think there's a number of different ways to look at it. Um, healthcare is an incredibly large, complex space. You know, it, it. You know, when you look at it, you could include, you know, uh, genome profiling. Um, you could include, you know, bio, right? And so, my expertise is really in digital health. And so, 
you know, what I've really learned is about, you know, there, there's massive amounts of data in the marketplace. There's uh, a tremendous number of patients that are sick uh, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity to upend the systematic approaches on rendering care. Now that said, it's, it's really, really an incredibly complex, challenging space and practice fusion took a boil the ocean let's you know change the entire way healthcare is rendered to some extent right let's move every piece of data the schedule the way an intake is done the actual chart connect labs connect 70,000 pharmacies it goes on and on into a digitized world and then add services on top of that which was really interesting that opportunity from my perspective you know when we started the business there may have been 10% adoption there's of, of an electronic health record, there's maybe 90% adoption now. So that ship has really sailed. So with 100 plus, we took a different approach. It was more of, let's go find a clean use case that no one's serving today where we don't have any dependencies on data. And so, you know, remote patient monitoring is the serving uh, for Medicare in particular is the serving of these senior citizens that, you know, are incredibly sick. 80% of them have a chronic condition, so it's not niche, right? You have 60 million patients on Medicare and 48 million of them have a chronic condition. And so, you know, it's a large swash of the market that's massively unserved. I, I think the other part, just to get into the pragmatic lessons, it is cleanly and clearly well reimbursed, right? And that was a big piece as well as we didn't need to struggle to find a business model. Um, I think with 100 plus, and I think one of practice fusion's demises was that, you know, we had a business model that was ad-based. We saw transactional revenue from sending a prescription or ordering a lab. But ultimately, when I left the company, they, the board hired a pharma CEO. And without unpacking all that, you know, they focused on uh, extracting, you know, they focused on monetization and they had a person who, you know, had a lot of pharma experience leading the company and that causes, you know, or that did in this case and in many cases I've seen causes, you know, ethical issues, right? You have this asset of patients and doctors and the relationship between them and the data and it can be monetized in a number of different ways and uh, you can push the boundaries of, from, from a regulatory perspective of how that's done, but having, you know, it's not just core values. It's having clear ethical guidelines and having checks and balances and ensuring that um, you know someone, at least one person, if not more, on the board long term to shepherd these decisions. And um, so those are some. I'm bouncing around between the model and the ethics of the business as well. But those are some of the rapid fire lessons that I've had. So how do the ethics of your company affect the bottom line of the business? You know, you've kind of spoken already about, you know, how, how it happened um, in Practice Fusion's case. And I guess I want to know, like, what's more? So, so number one, how does it affect the bottom line? And then two, what's more important, ethics or is it like compliance and efficiency of the EHR? What, what do you think is more important? I'm not sure if I can answer that directly, but, but let, me, let me answer the first part to the, the, the best I can. I think that we were, and not to toot our own horn, but we, at Practice Fusion, we brought a new model to market, right? Free enterprise product, and we found novel ways to, to monetize it. The transactional piece of the business was clean, right? Getting paid to deliver a script. We, didn't, we did not influence a practitioner to deliver a script to a particular person or entity, to CVS versus Walgreens, to LabCorp versus Quest. We just got paid for the facilitation and the efficiency of getting it there digitally and guaranteeing the delivery. Um, the data piece, I feel, was very much in our integrity. So we anonymized data for HIPAA standards and use that data, much like a 23andMe, to push the science of medicine forward for better and faster therapies. Where the business model got sticky was on the ad-based model. And so, you know, getting into ethics, I'll just, you know, talk about probably one of the reasons we're on the call today, and I get asked this a lot. So the year I left practice fusion in 2015, the company had nearly 80% revenue growth. So we, I brought it to, or my, my team while I was there brought it to a $50 million run rate. So we had a big business, no matter how you look at it. Um, and it was you know, valued at nearly $700 million and that was great. And that at the time, the conflict I had with the board 
was that the IPO window had closed and the board wanted to sell the business and I didn't. And so they had, back to my earlier lessons that I shared with you, Oleg, they had more votes than I did and I'm a big boy and that was that. that that's what you're signing up for, right? So they wanted to sell the company and that was their intent. Now in the interim, they brought on a pharma CEO and we had an incredibly strong core value system and you know, people lived and died by it, but it didn't matter and it doesn't matter. And why do I say that? Because I can instill that in the team and they can bleed blue in the case of practice fusion, but ultimately the board and the CEO are gonna make a decision by themselves on what the agenda and what the operational plan of that business was. And the agenda became revenue at all cost. And that was that. And so the business went on to do deals with Purdue and you know the business rotated, I believe, uh, I wasn't there, but I believe the business rotated uh, 250 million ads for opioids to patients, which you know breaks my heart to hear, right? And so my point is, is that you think you're gonna be there forever as a founder, you're likely not. And the day you're gone, you have no more say. You might even not have, vis in my case, I didn't have visibility. So I, I read about this in January when everyone else did as well. So, you know, what can you do to mitigate that? What we've done at 100 plus, still imperfect, but what we've done at 100 plus is we put a deeper code of ethics in place where everyone coming into the business has signed it. It's a contract. Um, and so we have explicitly said up front, we're not going to do any business with pharma. Not to say pharma is evil altogether, but it's just a very slippery slope. So we're not selling data to pharma. We're not doing pharma advertising. It goes on and on. And... So we did that up front, but you know, obviously we had been through a rodeo or two to, to learn that. And that, that was one piece. Now we'll make sure that any board member coming in the company and any new leader, as we already have, signs that as well. So let's say I get fired tomorrow or I get run over, whatever it is, I'm gone. You know, you're only as strong as the ethics of the leadership of the business. The business doesn't have a conscience, it's the individuals running it. And so, you know, if you hire someone new and they sign that and you're gone and let's say it's your successor um, and the rest of the management team that's still there, hopefully there's some social checks and balances because they committed to it. So that's one thing that we've done that's simply different here. Um, I, I think the other piece is that we just have a clear path to, to revenue in this business that is it's just cleanly ethical. There's no question or there's no potential for it to be corrupted where practice using you know, the ad based model. I think when you look at this, you look at, you know, a Facebook, right? And you look at uh, a business that has been used to catalyze genocide in Burma. And that's just factual. And it's funny, as I say that out loud, I feel like I'm putting on a tinfoil hat and speaking in conspiracies, but I'm not. And so, you know, it, it, I think for both of these examples, and I don't have 50 of them, but I have like four or five, an ad platform can clearly be weaponized. And in these two cases, they were. You have businesses like, you know, your iPhone, for example, so Apple and your sneakers from Nike, they've leveraged slave labor to deliver you these products, right? And so a business can be corrupted in many, many ways in the best of the businesses out there there's a lot of weakness. So how, how do you instill that it has a conscience? It, it's in my opinion, it's hiring the right people. But you know, what I saw after I left practice fusion was, you know, everyone was afraid of losing their job. So they kind of just went along with it. So I think that you'll believe the strongest of your team will do the right thing. But I think that when their family and their livelihood is on the line, um, they're going to, simply go with the flow many times. And so what else can you do up front to build a framework like a code of ethics to ensure that your vision is carried out after you're gone? And, and again, the irrevocable board seat, a framework for code of ethics. These are some, some ways that you can do that. So after you left Practice Fusion in 2015, you quickly pivoted to a new venture in a new space. Can you tell me more about, you know, what you decided to do with your quote unquote free agency and maybe tell me why you decided remote patient monitoring? Yeah. So the business itself, 100 plus has gone through, it's in its second iteration. We, we did pivot it. We started off as a device manufacturer. 
We built a device that uh, detected cardiac arrest real time. It was very novel. We did struggle in just full transparency, finding a great product market fit. The product again was novel. It worked incredibly well, but it was geared towards seniors. And we found that they all wanted it, but they were just unwilling or unable to pay for it. Um, Medicare, so this started around 2016. Uh, in 2018, it was announced that Medicare would be reimbursing for remote patient monitoring. So putting a FDA approved device on a patient, including our device or blood pressure cuff or blood glucose or scale, it goes on and on. There's no limitation as long as it's FDA approved. And so we found that we were in a position where we understood seniors really well. We've been working with them for two years. We understood the problem space, how to talk with them, uh, you know, how to, you know, how to engage them as well. And then we had a technology platform that would take data from an IoT device, right, a connected device, consume it, and render it to the end user. We also were in this serendipitous spot where we had kind of the cream of the crop of the practice fusion team with us, where we. Now that Medicare is reimbursing the practitioner and the product theoretically could be subsidized to a patient, we just thought we had the, the perfect storm. We had experience with the seniors. Clearly, we knew the doctors well, uh, how to find them online, how to message them. From our practice fusion experience, we had built arguably the largest cloud-based platform of doctors in the shortest amount of time in history. And then we already had this tech stack built. So. We retooled it rapidly and we brought on additional devices. We got out of the hardware space altogether, but we still distribute hardware. We just don't build on anymore, which is an incredibly challenging business, a discussion for another podcast. But we have, um, we formally launched, we, we went to a beta end of last year. It went really well. And we have ramped, you know, a, a, a remarkable business this year. We manage over 10,000 grandmas and grandpas right now. The business is on the cusp of a $10 million ARR. So it's just, I mean, it's been an aggressive ramp, uh, which has been super exciting. And uh, so it's really not, you know, sometimes it takes a little while to find the right product market fit. And then Oleg, sometimes, you know, once in a while in your life, things will click and they just come together. Not to say it's perfect. You know, we, we are like any other startup, we, we, have other needs and challenges and struggles, but sometimes things just work really well. And so we're, we're, I'm really proud of the business where it has a strong board, it has a strong code of ethics, it has a strong revenue model, it has a strong impact. And, um, you know, we built something pretty significant. Um, and uh, I, I think that next year in particular will be a, a banner year for the company. All right. Well, that was awesome. Uh, Ryan, believe it or not, I have more questions, but we're going to we're going to close it there. Uh, so we got we to gotta get you back on here. If you liked our show, please share it with someone who you think would enjoy it. Ryan, we appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing and teaching us. This was fun. Awesome. Thanks, Oleg. Have a great day. Ooh.